What's up, peeps? This is your best friend, Dave Pancakes, and welcome to the Paranormal Pancakes Podcast, Episode 2. That's right, folks. Episode 1 is in the books, and it was, as my best friend, Nigel Thornberry, would say, SMASHING! Everybody loved it. It was super funny, super perfect. But, listen, it's the first episode. I know there was a couple of... A couple of pain points, as we say in the biz. Um, one of them being, use a little too many clips. I didn't hear for this from one person. It was four, and uh, they all hurt me very badly. Just kidding, dude. They only hurt me a little bit. But like I was saying, this is a iterative process. We will slowly but surely implement changes, and uh, hopefully it's for the better. It will be for the better. Um, but as for now, uh, let's get to it, peeps. So last week, obviously, we had discussed the Roswell incident and all the fun shenanigans that went down out there in lovely New Mexico. But I had asked all the listeners... All 21 of you, thanks to Anchor's amazing stats, um, I had put out a little inquiry about, uh, what do you think happened, dudes and dudettes? And we got a response from my good buddy, Matthew Early. And for that, my dude, I'm going to borrow a segment from my favorite podcast of all time called The Unbelievable Podcast, where they would give props to people who participate in the episode. So you, sir, my friend, you're gonna you're gonna get some props, bruh. I was so tempted to let that entire four minute clip play but I restrained myself. Uh, I cannot guarantee that I can do that in the future, but I will do my best. So anywho, so last week, you know, we had discussed Roswell, but before that, we had discussed the New York Times article in which, you know, they had claimed, or that they had admitted, rather, that they had retrieved off-Earth vehicles. Now, I know I said I was a little clip-heavy, but literally, the day I released the podcast, I released the podcast late Friday, and in the wee hours of Saturday morning, it's actually probably Saturday afternoon, um, Chris Mellon, uh, this guy Chris Mellon, who was uh, one of the founding members of To The Stars uh, Academy, which is Luis Elizondo and Tom DeLong's uh, little UFO organization they got going. But more importantly, he was a staff director um, for 10 years for the Senate Select Committee of Intelligence so the man has an idea of what he's talking about too. About a four and a half minute clip, and I've decided to play the clip in its entirety because it's all kind of interesting. Uh, so here it is. It's probably time to stop calling people who believe in UFOs crackpots. After the recent revelation that there's actually a Pentagon task force looking into them. One astrophysicist who has worked for the Pentagon's UFO program since 2007 told the New York Times that he gave a classified briefing to a Defense Department agency about retrievals from, quote, off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. Are we on the brink of full disclosure about visitors from outer space? 
Joining me now is Christopher Mellon. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence during the Bill Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. He also co-hosts Unidentified, Inside America's UFO Investigation on the History Channel. So, Chris, I sense that there has been a sea change recently in the way in which these reports are being carried and covered. What accounts for it? What has gone on recently? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you're absolutely right, and a good example of this sea change is the fact that uh, none other than, than Scientific American itself has published an article saying the subject ought to be taken seriously and investigated by the scientific community. I think this change is largely a result, primarily a result of the fact that the Defense Department and the Navy it's themselves have stood up and publicly acknowledged that this phenomenon is real, that this is happening, that our Navy pilots are encountering these vehicles. And so that imparts a credibility that simply did not exist prior to, prior to that time. I was quoting Eric Davis. I know you're familiar with his work when I read that, that uh, New York Times paragraph a moment ago. Do you believe that there are objects in our possession, broadly defined our possession, that are from something other than this Earth? What I will say about that is that I think that assertion should be taken seriously. Um, I, I'm aware of, I know Eric very well, um, I understand his arguments, uh, I was present at his briefings uh, on the Hill, and uh, he tried to provide some leads for them to follow, to uh, enable them potentially to confirm this. Um, it, it is an issue that should be taken seriously. In fact, curiously, President Trump himself, on Father's Day, indicated um, uh, on, on air while being filmed that uh, he did have classified information about uh, Roswell, New Mexico, which is, as most people know, is the uh, legendary site of an alleged craft, uh, crash of a, uh, of a UFO. And uh, when asked by his son about that, about declassifying it, he said, I'll have to think about it. I don't know what there is about Roswell that could be classified or interesting other than that one particular uh, issue. So uh, there is a lot of, of new press and new information coming forward. Uh, and again, as I said, I think this is a, a topic that the oversight committees should take seriously and investigate. It's the only thing missing from this election. Who knows what the next 90 days brings? This is a, this is a global issue. This is not a unit. Right. right. This is not a United States issue. Are there other countries that have taken a lead in the exploration of this subject? Absolutely. In fact, we're behind uh, several other countries. Uh, France, for many years, has had an official uh, process involving their, their national security uh, forces and police forces. Every year they examine a number of cases and, and bring in outside scientists. Uh, a lot of that information is public. My colleague Lou Elizondo has uh, uh, made trips both to Italy and South America, and we present a lot of this information on our show, as well as a lot of information from uh, current and former U.S. military personnel and their experiences. But you're absolutely right. This is not unique to the United States. Uh, and further, uh, our military personnel have similar experiences when they're deployed abroad in the Middle East and Afghanistan and elsewhere. 
So um, by all accounts, it is definitely a worldwide phenomenon. And that, by the way, appeared on CNN, uh, everybody's favorite network. As you heard, Chris Mellon had mentioned that Trump was briefed on the UFO topic. And, uh, well, spoiler alert, peeps, Trump does not particularly believe in UFOs. So that's good news for us because whatever he says, the opposite is true. So they're real and they're here, peeps. But I did read this article called uh, Trump's October Surprise, and this article essentially proposes this theory where Trump is going to drop this alien bombshell in the months leading up to the election, or closer to the election, because we are in the months leading up to the election, because an October Surprise, it's something that uh, is deliberately created to put into the news cycle during an election to kind of influence the outcome so this is uh his attempt to try and uh, or this is this author saying that this would be his attempt to try and win us over but the article is not well written at all one of the key one of the key arguments is what has he got to lose uh the election buddy so the article literally starts off with Donald Trump, knowing he'd lose if the election was held today, wants one of those October surprises so he can beat Biden over the head with it. Anywho, I will link the article in the show notes, so if you want to take a peek and read the article yourself, you are more than welcome to, my friends. Um, but enough time wasted on this turd Trump. We need to get into this week's episode. And the topic that we will be discussing this week is a gentleman by the name of Bob Lazar. Now, good old beanbag Bobby Lazar was a whistleblower in the UFO community in the late 80s. And he obviously has a rather interesting story. So, without further ado, let's dig in, peeps. So, as I was thinking of, you know, how I was going to run this episode, I kept thinking to myself, Bob Lazar, Bob Lazar. And I immediately, after the second time I had uttered good old Bobby's name, this is immediately what I thought of. How bizarre. How bizarre. How bizarre. Now, I don't know if I'm losing my mind or going a little bit crazy because I'm sitting here doing alien podcast with no shirt on and some shitty Adidas gym shorts, but that is immediately what I thought of. But that song is absolute fire. An absolute bop from the 90s. So most of the information that I have pulled for today's ep was from a documentary about our good buddy Bob Lazar. And the Bob Lazar documentary that we will be using today is Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers. 
and it's actually a pretty well-produced documentary. Uh, it's definitely a little over the top in some aspects, but overall for it being a documentary about alien UFOs, it's not super corny or super chitsy. So it starts off, well, first of all, it's produced by this guy, Jeremy Corbin, who was kind of like this um, producer who quote unquote specializes in making UFO documentaries. He also has another uh, pretty popular UFO documentary called The Hunt for Skinwalker Ranch. And it starts, the, the documentary starts off a little bit weird. First of all, it's narrated by Mickey Rourke who sounds like he has just eaten a carton of cigarettes and is doing everything in one take regardless if he stutters or not. Not unlike this podcast. So the documentary starts with Jeremy, uh, it's actually pronounced Corbell. So uh, Jeremy Corbell and uh, Bobby Lazar are exchanging messages, uh, phone calls, and Bob is saying that his lab is currently being raided by the FBI. To which Jeremy responds via text, Are you serious? So this this dude, Jeremy, he's really going for that Oscar. But yeah, so this is how the documentary starts. It just kind of throws you into this uh, FBI raid that's come going on in the present. Which actually, I do remember reading about a couple years ago in the newspaper. This happened about 2018. So Jeremy Corbell uh, then begins exchanging text messages with a gentleman named George Knapp. Now George Knapp is the man, and we'll get to him later, but the story starts back, I said, in 1989, where this whole fiasco, you know, kind of starts off. So in 1989, uh, you guessed it, George Knapp, he was a reporter for a local Las Vegas uh, TV channel, he was doing the story that um, you know the U.S. government had been working on UFOs, aliens. They had this alien technology that they were attempting to reverse engineer, but the guy that they were interviewing wanted to stay anonymous. So the alias they gave him was Dennis, who, as you may have guessed by now, is uh, our boy Bob Lazar. So Bobby was saying that he was working at this secret base called S4, which was in Groom Lake, which is uh, not too far from Area 51. And all of this is in Nevada, so uh, FYI, 81% of Nevada is owned by the government, so they do a shit ton of testing out there. And who knows what the heck else is getting done out there. So then Bob goes on saying that the government currently has nine alien spacecraft in their repertoire. And some are fully capable, some have no damage at all, and the others are currently being taken apart and reverse engineered. And he claims that he was working on back engineering their propulsion system to find out how these guys traveled around the goddamn universe. Now, Bobby said that the reason he came forward was because it was, quote-unquote, a crime against science and humanity that these technologies were being hidden uh, when we could put them to good use. So, he then goes on to say that his life has been threatened, his wife's life has been threatened because he's leaking all this information. So, one of the reasons he ends up coming forward and revealing his identities, you know, he believes it gives him some security because it would definitely look a little suspicious if he somehow mysteriously died. But you're probably wondering, 
how did uh, our good buddy Bobby get involved in all of this? Well, I have a little clip for you peeps that I'm going to play that kind of talks about, you know, how he broke into this biz. Well, fine, I'll just say everything instead of holding back on anything, yeah. and then you can edit it later on. Well, take it from the top. Okay. Well, go ahead. How <laughs> uh, you got involved? I had sent resumes to several national labs. I got a response from a couple of them. I went in for an interview. They had a job in mind. And then they continued questioning me, mainly on my interests outside of work. They seemed to be really concerned about that. Well, things like jet park. Right. What do you do in your spare time? Uh, you know, you, you say you work on little projects. I said, yeah, I have a particle accelerator in my master bedroom. And then things of that sort and uh, some time went by and they called me back in and they said uh, there was a, a senior staff physicist that was leaving uh, this organization and they basically interviewed me for that job. I was given a lot of briefings to read on, I, I believe there were 121 different briefings and they just sat me in a room and they had a, uh, while they were going and updating my clearance to a level that they call majestic. You start reading it. You see some of the fuel flying saucers. What's your reaction? Well, I was I was completely shocked. I couldn't I couldn't believe it, but uh, I was fascinated. I was so excited. I it, it's a it's a science dream, really. Eventually, I was shown them uh, one close up, one operating. They had uh, one of the reactors out of the crafts, which was an antimatter reactor. Uh, I was given a demonstration on how it worked, uh, things that it did, and uh, the physics of it. The thing they were most interested in is, is duplicating the, the reactors without using this element 115, uh, which is, of course, impossible. They were trying to, uh, and there have been projects before that, uh, just trying to use a, a normal nuclear generator, fuel with plutonium, and uh, really a futile attempt. Some people are sources of gravity. Their certainty and wholeness commands our attention. Side note, that gentleman at the end of the clip was our, our boy, our narrator, Mickey Rourke. I just wanted you guys to hear his uh, terrifying voice. Anywho, yeah, so that was Bob, Bobby Lazar, talking about how he got into the industry, the biz. And also, too, this dude's got some some strange hobbies. Like he had mentioned, he's got a goddamn particle accelerator in his freaking bedroom. He also builds these, like, weird car things. He builds those, like, rocket cars, um, which he has an interesting little story uh, further in the documentary. But he does mention something called Element 115. Now, this Element 115, I know it sounds like a fake... Uh, element that they would use in like some shitty Marvel movie but it is interesting and it is true or I should say it is real rather but we'll get to that further down the line so back to Bob's hobbies uh, so Bobby was mentioning that he likes building these rocket cars uh, so they they interview in this documentary one of his neighbors uh, and it's a kind of a uh, it's a funny story because it both ties in his hobbies 
and it also ties into how he was quote unquote fearful for his life so they interview his hillbilly neighbor and um, here's a clip what is your name and what's your relationship to Bob Lazar? my name is Mario Santa Cruz and I met Bob uh, actually in my neighborhood uh, he lived like one block over my attraction to Bob was his jet dragster so I saw this jet dragster sitting out in front of uh, his house in our neighborhood, which was extremely, just the jet dragster alone was rare. But in my neighborhood to see something like that was unbelievable. People were harassing Bob, threatening him, and you were with him in one of those experiences, at least one. A couple of times, actually. I actually had a weapon with me, you know, when, I, when we rode together because he had been shot at, you know. What was the weapon? Was it the Uzi? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so when, uh, I, I don't know why I'm being so careful. I'm used to being that way when it comes to talking about Bob, being careful what I say, you know what I mean? It, so it's kind of, of course, a habit to kind of just walk on eggshells a little bit. He just wanted to stay alive. That's why he exposed himself. His life was, it, it was in chaos. How he pulled out of it, you know, he dug deep. It's a pretty incredible story. So I want to start off by saying that uh, Mario got really dressed up for this interview. He wore his best sleeveless Harley Davidson t-shirt to show off his freaking sick ass wolf tattoo that was looking really crispy. So like he was saying, Mario and his sleeveless t-shirts were really drawn to uh, Bob's quote unquote jet dragsters, which were his rocket cars. So basically they look like a car that has like a freaking plasma cannon attached to the back of it so side note if my neighbor had one of these i would probably stay clear from him uh given that i don't know how sane he is or she but this all ties into how bob never felt safe he always felt somebody was after him hence why um sleeveless mario here always brought a gun with him while he was hanging out with our good buddy bob so the next scene after that, uh, they interview Bobby's mom, uh, who was this ancient woman living in Florida, where she proceeds to tell some cute stories about how when Bob was a wee little young lad, he almost blew up the apartment with his chemistry experiments. And she, uh, the, the close off the interview, it's like two minutes long. Uh, she's like, oh, I definitely believe we're not alone in the universe. There's definitely something else out there. By the way, she's not Scottish. Uh, I don't know why I'm talking like this. But anywho... So after she is interviewed, uh, they jump to yet another interview. This time it includes Bob's wife. Uh, her name is Joyce, and she just kind of gives a little fluff piece that, Bob's an honest man. I believe whatever he tells me. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. It was kind of pointless, but... So it then cuts to, you know, current times. Uh, our good buddy Bob has a has his own lab now in Michigan. Uh, it's called United Nuclear, and uh, that's where they perform cute little experiments and whatnot. He also talks about, in a greater detail, what he was doing and what he was working on at the, uh, the S4 location. So here's a little portion of the interview. 
you know, transporting a small modern day portable nuclear reactor back into Victorian times and giving it to the scientists there. Back in that time, they didn't even know about radiation. So they'd see a machine making power, kind of like what we're doing, and marvel at it. Wow, it's producing a lot of power. There's no smokestack, there's no coal, there's no fuel. How is this thing working? They start taking it apart. Well, they'll all die as soon as they get close to the core. People that come in to check on them will all die, and no one knows. Nothing touched them. So they're going to think it's haunted or something. There's some evil forces or something in there. But, um, I mean, who says that can't happen to us? The first time Barry showed me the reactor in operation, you know, here it is on the bench. Try and touch the sphere on top. And you couldn't. Your hand was pushed away. Just like two light poles of a magnet. The exact same feeling, but there was no metal involved. And that's shocking. That's really shocking because nothing does that. That's an operating, powerful force field. So just seeing something like that immediately starts that whole chain reaction in your mind going, wow, wait, if you can do this, there can be force fields in the tanks. There can be things that lift off the ground. We don't need jet and rocket engines anymore. That means there's, wait, there's no use for cars. I mean, boom, the whole thing changes the entire world, the economy, everything would go end on end just if we had answer to how that machine worked that I was sitting there touching. The potential for us to re-understand human experience is... Right. Right. There's, I mean, there's life somewhere else. It's a big deal. It's an important part of human history that we found that out. It was awesome, but fearsome at the same time. So that was Bobby dropping some knowledge bombs on us. And you know how if this technology was out available to the general public, how it would change the world. Which is a it's a pretty cool thought, pretty interesting thought, and this kind of kinda of reminded me of how Nikola Tesla tried to provide the world with free energy. Uh was unsuccessful, but it was def it's definitely interesting and I would love to do an episode about him one day. But back to Bob. I guess one of the most, uh, you know, interesting aspects of the Bob Lazar fiasco is that the, the places where he said he worked Los Alamos and S4 denied that he ever worked there. However, I want you to listen to this next clip and see why that's interesting. It should be a security matter. Some of it, sure. But just the concept that there's definite proof we even have articles from another world, another system. You just can't not tell everyone. Checking out Lazar's credentials proved to be a difficult task. He says he earned degrees in physics and electronics, but the schools we contacted say they've never heard of him. He also said he worked as a physicist at Los Alamos National Lab, where he experimented with one of the world's largest particle beam accelerators, a half-mile-long behemoth capable of generating 700 million volts. Los Alamos officials told us they had no records of a Robert Lazar ever working there. They were either mistaken or were lying. A 1982 phone book from the lab lists Lazar right there among the other scientists and technicians. A 1982 clipping from the Los Alamos newspaper profiled Lazar and his interest in jet cars. It too mentioned his employment at the lab as a physicist. We called Los Alamos again. An exasperated official told us he still had no records on Lazar. EG&G, which is where Lazar says he was interviewed for the job at S4, also has no records. 
It's as if someone has made him disappear. One thing that people say about your... So despite the fact that there is proof that he was working at the Los Alamos, the Los Alamos lab, they still denied that he had worked there. So now Bob's story, it's not 100%, you know, I don't believe everything, but this, this is definitely something. I mean, I definitely believe that he worked there. I mean, there's no question about it. Now, what he did there, you know, that's definitely up for debate, but as far as him working at these locations, he was definitely there, and that's what it's so fascinating about this one because there's two separate locations that denied he worked there, but the records show that he did work there in the newspaper and in the yearbook, and like he said, and you're not going to be hired in one of these physics labs without having an extremely high degree in some sort of science at some sort of prestigious institution, so... So it makes you wonder what they're trying to cover up or what they're trying to hide. Now, it doesn't mean that it's aliens or you know, it could just be high-level projects they don't want anybody else knowing about. But it makes you—it does make you wonder. Jeez, the, the more I talk, the, the more batshit crazy I sound. Believe me, I know. So this next clip I want to play, um, it talks about uh, George Knapp and he, how his uh, investigation was going into Bob and how he had a tough time verifying some of the information. But in the second portion of the clip, um, our good friend Bob, he gets in a little bit of trouble. And it's for a crime that you'd be surprised that he would be involved in. Our story that we can't prove his schooling, in fact, it, it was a problem. I mean, I had, I, I wondered can we go forward if he if we can't verify what was going on in his background the central point for me was if he worked at los alamos that suggests he had to have an education somewhere i think he said it to me a couple of times you know what do you think they hired me right out of uh, high school i i looked at uh, people who knew him back then jim taliani for one who said that yeah bob went to caltech back then i dropped him off i interviewed another uh, person who also uh, knew Bob then and, and said that he would drop him off at Caltech, would pick him up from the library, that if he wasn't going to school there, he sure was making a good show of it back then. <laughs> would it prove his story about working on flying saucers if he could show he had degrees from Caltech and MIT? No, of course not. It would not prove that he worked on flying saucers. It would just prove that he went to school. The people who despise him and who doubt the story the most, the debunkers, would find something else to bitch about. Bob got into some trouble after he became a worldwide UFO celebrity. He did a typical Bob sort of a thing and got mixed up with some hookers. He was helping them set up a little mini brothel uh, in a neighborhood. And when he told me about it, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, my professional life is flashing before my eyes here. The most high profile witness and the biggest story I've, I've ever done is now telling me he's involved in this criminal enterprise. He kind of thought it was funny, uh, but it wasn't funny to me. So I said, you got to stop this stuff. you got to shut this down. I called the cops. I let some people know, look, he made a mistake. It's being shut down. They raided the place, arrested Bob. And in those days, there weren't many people who were ever prosecuted and arrested for pandering. Lazar was. So parole and probation. They're doing a background investigation and they're going to make a recommendation to the court what the sentence should be for his crimes. He tells them the same story, where he went to school, where he worked, S4, MIT, Caltech, all that. 
and they investigated. They were having the same problems that I was having. They couldn't verify a lot of this stuff. If Bob truly was a UFO con man, that was the time to come clean because parole and probation was ticked off. They thought he was misleading them. And as a result of that, they were going to recommend, they did recommend that he do hard time, go to prison. He knew it. That was the time for him to come clean because it was a much better chance that he would not be sent to prison. He didn't. He stuck to his story. He told them the same story that he told me. That went a long way for me in showing that he had been telling the truth because it was definitely in his own self-interest to fess up at that point. And that's not what he did. He stuck to his guns. Here's the thing. Okay, I can see Bob Lazar pranks the UFO world and the UFO community. I can see him doing something like that. But does he lie to his mom and dad? Does he lie to his wife? Does he lie to all of his close friends and tell them the same story and try to get away with it? You look back on the people who knew him while this was going on, who knew him before he was hired to work out at S4, who knew him during the time he was going back and forth out there, and who stuck by him after this whirlwind of international publicity kind of rained down on his head. Everyone who knew him, everyone who was close to him, supports his story and says he's telling the truth. So I know that was a rather lengthy clip, but that's right, peeps. Our boy Bob got involved in a little prostitution ring. Isn't that nice? Goes from uh, conducting some scientific experiments to uh, chilling with some thoughts. Um, listen, Bob, you're a married man, dude. Get it together. So clearly Bob is a very intelligent man when it comes to book smarts, but when it comes to exercising, you know, street smarts and uh, having common sense, he's a little bit lacking, so... And he did plead guilty to this. He pled guilty to a lesser felony, something called pandering. Um, and he's, he was required to 150 hours of community service, stay away from brothels, and undergo psychotherapy. So, come on, Bob, not helping your case. But George Knapp, the guy who's doing the uh, investigating, does bring up a good point that if his story wasn't true, um, about him having said he worked at those bases and getting the degrees from Caltech and whatnot. That would have been the perfect time for him to come clean, but he didn't, so he stuck true to his guns. So that does, you know, add a little bit of credibility to his story since he stuck with it. And this isn't the only time that, um, Bad Boy Bobby has an interaction with the authorities. So before we get to Bob's other interaction with the authorities, there's another uh, statement or claim rather that Bob makes that he kind of tripped himself over, uh, and it's whether or not that he saw any aliens on the base. So I'm going to play another clip for you peeps. Um, I know it's a lot of clips, I'm sorry, but it just adds good context to the story. And uh, here it is, friends. I just glanced in and I noticed 
at a quick glance, there was there were two guys in white lab coats um, facing me towards the door, and they were looking down and talking to something small with with long arms. Now I I was just surprised as I walked by, and I only caught a glance, but I don't know what on earth that was. People say you saw an alien. Did you see an alien at S4, Bob? I don't think I saw an alien at S4. You know, we're splitting the hairs here. This had to do with a glance through a window that I wasn't supposed to be looking at anyway. And I'm still convinced. I looked in the window, and I think these guys had a doll um, in a small chair, which was you know, similar to what was in the craft. Um, and I think they were just looking at dimensions, and they put something in there. And I just took it a glance, and it was just something tiny sitting in the chair. I, I don't think there was an alien there posing for him. You know, I think they just had a small character or something, you know, doing measurements or something. Again, we're talking about, you know, like a 400 millisecond glance. So now how much can you see out of that? I, don't, I never saw any aliens walking around there. I never heard anybody saying anything about living aliens. So I don't think that was it. But they did have a nickname. For for the for the aliens, the kids, the kids. So, our boy Bobby contradicted himself a little bit there, um, but I have yet another clip that strangely they don't even breach this topic in this documentary. Um, the. Uh, no, there was no, absolutely no ET craft, ET technology, anything like that at Area 51. This is why S-4 was made specifically to separate it there. People at Area 51 do not have the clearance. I was paid by the Department of Naval Intelligence, and what they're doing researching extraterrestrial craft is beyond me, but that's, that's where my checks came from, so I can only assume that uh, they were in charge of that. At one time, the Russians were involved, and supposedly there was some breakthrough made by our team, however this project was split up. And right after that happened, uh, the Russians were no longer permitted on the facility at all. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all I know about it. What was discovered, why they were kicked out, when they started working with us, is all unknown to me. I was put into the briefing room with uh, 121 or 22 briefings and really was just told to sit and read through them. I think they were there just to mainly educate me on, on what was going on. They weren't a complete in-depth in explanation on everything else, but just uh, essentially a brief synopsis on some of the other projects that were going on there. Supposedly, the information, now this isn't something that I determined, it's something I was told, that uh, the crafts originated from uh, a planet that orbited the Zeta Reticuli star system, Zeta Reticuli 1 and Zeta Reticuli 2, or two, two stars of a binary star system. Uh, the craft allegedly came from there. One or two autopsy photographs I saw uh, dealt with just a small photograph, a bus shot essentially, just head, shoulders, and chest of an alien with a uh, uh, chest was cut open in a T fashion and one single organ was removed. Uh, 
the organ itself and then it, in the other picture was uh, cut and vivisectioned essentially the uh, showing the different chambers in there this was totally unrelated to anything I was doing but from that photograph it looked like what you see in UFO lore as the typical gray so how tall it was from what I could see I I couldn't tell because I only saw a portion of the photograph but if everything else you see is correct I would imagine it was three and a half or four feet tall but uh, there again you know all I had to see was a photograph and you know I didn't have much to go on how could they not friggin put that in the documentary I mean Jesus the guy in this clip, this is an interview from 1989. He admits that he saw photos of a dead alien. And not only did he see photos of a dead alien, he also says that they know what star system they come from. Uh, the Zeta Reticuli, which they actually, this isn't the first time the Zeta Reticuli appear. Uh, there's a very popular UFO abduction case, alien abduction case, uh, and a couple named Betty and Barney Hill were abducted by the zeta reticulant aliens so we will definitely do an episode on them because it is uh super duper interesting but again it's more contradiction from uh, our boy bobby where you know he says he's never seen aliens before in the current documentary but then you pull clips from 30 years ago and he's giving us and he's giving us a specific star system where these things are coming from so you can understand why some people doubt his claims. I mean, I know 30 years is a long time, but that's a pretty big detail not to stay consistent with, so it is what it is. So if you had recalled this, uh, this documentary started with Jeremy and Bob exchanging text messages about how Bob's lab is getting raided. Well, we are back at it now, friends, so. We're at the point of the documentary where Bob and Jeremy are going to discuss the element 115. So Jeremy uh, just straight up asks good old Bobby if he had stolen any of element 115 from S4 while he was working there in 1989. So they do a little weird editing thing and they kind of transition to Bob reaching out to Jeremy letting him know that his lab has been raided um, this, this was the day after they had the conversation about the element 115 so Bob states that the FBI and the other agency that was raiding him they were looking for an order form from two years ago because they believed that a customer had ordered something potentially toxic to which Bob responded he's like you know you guys could have just called so then Bob is speaking with Jeremy and he believes that he is being shaken down because he had worked on this uh, element 115 when he was at S4 back in the day and that he allegedly stole some and brought it off the base. Everybody knows the story is that you got some element 115 out of Los Alamos. That, that's public knowledge. Something you said a while back. Do you think that what happened had to do with, with that. Where'd I go in there? Are they trying to shake you down to find the 115 that you said 30 years ago that you got out of the lab? People are going to ask that. Yep. So let's just address that. If you feel comfortable addressing it. No. Do you not feel comfortable addressing that? 
No, I don't feel comfortable. So Bobby was getting a little grumpy as he was getting pressed about uh, this element 115 that he allegedly stole from uh, S4. Now, if I could put my two cents in, I don't think there's any chance in hell that this dude was able to sneak out an unstable element from a goddamn military base. I mean, he maybe knew how to like design it and create some, but there's no way in hell this dude was able to uh, steal some. But the crazy shit is, so he was talking about this in 1989, and in 2003, a team of Russian and American scientists were able to uh, synthetically make this element 115. And I can't even attempt to pronounce this name. But it does officially exist, and it, as of 2015, is officially on the periodic table. Now, I know we're running a little long this week, but I do want to play one final clip, and it's Bob talking about how Element 115 was used to power these uh, spacecraft that he was working on. And, uh... Element 115 was what we would call the fuel, what provided the power for the reactor to work. What happens with gravity and 115? Element 115 affects gravity. Element 115 produces its own gravitational energy. It had a very specific manufacturing technique. I don't really know how that information came to be. Um, its code name was LA-1000. That's what it was referred to off-site. It's purpose was supposed to be, again, this is just a code and deception, was supposed to be an advanced armor. So it's an unusual material, so now we can take it to a national lab. This is LA-1000 classified material. It's a very advanced armor that takes care of all weird questions. And there you have it, peeps. That's how uh, element 115 ties into this whole uh, situation now I think it's time that we pop over to our conclusions hey my guy yet again so freaking pumped from that spicy jam. So, what do I think happened? Well, here are my thoughts. I'll keep it real, peeps. I'm kind of drinking the Kool-Aid on this one. For the most part, I do believe our boy Bobby, especially considering the fact all these New York Times articles are coming off talking about off-world vehicles and this Element 115, which he was talking about all the way back in 1989. They were able to create it, at least publicly, in 2003 and as of 2015 it's added to the periodic uh, charts listen i know some of his stories were a little bit inconsistent about the the alien bodies but i think for the most part uh, bobby's uh, bobby's story is pretty rock solid so uh what do you peeps think uh slide into the paranormal pancakes podcast dms and let me know so until next time bye bye